Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the strange furor around the reimagination of Disney's Ariel, how Taylor Swift's fans are pushing her feud with Scooter Braun into dangerous territory, and the Byron Bay influencers who grace the pages of the world's best article in Vanity Fair this week. But first, Michelle, how was your week? I had a really good week. I'm slowly, slowly recovering from this head cold, which is amazing. I did spark the most controversy I've ever sparked in my own Instagram stories on Friday night. Something tells me that's not true given the controversy (laughs) of the last few weeks. No, but I mean, my specific Instagram story content, never really controversial. I mostly just talk about work and reshare photos of you and (laughs) general shameless content. Yeah. But I was a little bit tipsy slash a lot tipsy on Friday night and I'd had a few wines and I was at this football dinner, like an AFL dinner, a little bit intimidating to be in that kind of space, but I was there and In front of me was a whole bunch of finger food. Like there was party pies, sausage rolls, and then there were pasties. And around the table, me and my friends got discussing the hierarchy of finger food and how pasties is absolutely, definitely the worst variety of finger food, unquestionably. Fuck pasties. Literally fuck pasties. Genuinely fuck pasties. I think the quote from Brie at the table was, I don't fuck with pasties. I'm like, that's a good quote. Do we know what pasties are made out of? No, I looked it up. Apparently I need to try a Cornish pasty. I got lots of DMs about it. What are in Um, pasties, I'm Googling. On my Instagram account. But I will read out to you because my hierarchy, I first of all asked a poll of the followers, the followers, I don't have many, but the people who do follow me, asking, are pasties the inferior finger food pastry? Yes or no? Two thirds of people agree with me. One third of people disagreed. Who are these people? (laughs) Pasties are so dry and tasteless. I agree with you. They're shit. They're also a bit bogan. 
They are completely bogan. I'm so sorry. And I am the one to own eating bogan food. I don't eat pasties. Party pies are also incredibly bogan. I can eat a party pie so long as the meat in the middle has cooled down enough that it doesn't burn the entire roof of my mouth. <laughs> exactly. Okay, listen to my sorry. hierarchy. Tangent. You didn't give me feedback on this. You gave me feedback in the pro. Because you had about 100 stories about it and I was yeah. like, this is enough. I think, I think I'm going to make this a highlight on don't. my Instagram profile. <laughs> oh my this God. is my favorite story content ever. So I wrote on my story, okay, let's get this straight. The official finger food hierarchy is as follows. One, arancini balls. Totally. Love, love, love an arancini ball. Number two, curry puffs. Fuck curry puffs. What? The, down the bottom with pasties. <laughs> it's bogan food, but it's a good bogan totally food. Totally bo- Also, disclaimer, all finger food is pretty bogan. <laughs> Three, party pies. Yeah. Four, sausage rolls. A good sausage roll straight to the top for me. A shit sausage roll straight to the bottom. But we're talking about frozen aisle food. Oh, okay. Shit sausage rolls down to the bottom. Things Party you- pies rise straight to the top. <laughs> Spring rolls, spinach and ricotta parcels. Seven spot went to money bags. Eight spot went to pasties. Fucking fight me. That is the, that is the official hierarchy of In- finger food, period. It's, it's a bit messy. No, I think it's right. I got lots of, um, I don't think I've ever gotten so many hate messages from people slamming my hierarchy. I think that spring rolls have to be in number two. Incorrect. There's something so dry about a frozen sausage roll. No. so dry. It's the same meat as like the pasty and it's like, what is going on in here? No, okay. Where is my moisture? Where is my flavour? If we're talking spring rolls from a restaurant, amazing, delicious, tasty, yum. Get them into my body right now. Spring rolls from the frozen food aisle, not as good. There's like one string of of cabbage holding them together. We're talking about frozen food right now. Nothing is good. This is literally a ranking system of things that aren't good. <laughs> anyway, if you do want to check out my hierarchies, I also um, did oh a my hierarchy. God, she just wants Instagram followers. Of course. Of uh, potato related snacks. And I do admit I was drunk at the time and I have deep regrets over my potato hierarchy. Okay. Everything else I stand by. I do have a recommendation for the week. Oh, please. Have you been watching Black Mirror at all lately? I haven't watched uh, season five. I have watched a lot of Black Mirror in my time, but I haven't got around to season five. I've watched a few episodes here and there. I love the quality of the acting and the writing behind Black Mirror. The one thing I don't like is that sometimes it's very dark and a little bit gruesome. I need to dip in and out of it. Yeah. I I can't binge it. I can't watch too many Black Mirror episodes because I often feel really gloomy afterwards. However, the first episode of season five... Highly recommend. It really challenges, I don't know, ideas around sexual pleasure, infidelity and sexuality. And I watched it with Mitch and we stuck it out until the very end, but it did make us feel quite uncomfortable in parts. That said, I really fucking enjoyed it. I think the acting in it was impeccable. I think the content they covered is very realistic for what a lot of couples might actually encounter with the rise of... so nervous to watch this, imagining you and Mitch watching it together and then getting weird inside into your sex life. I'm so sorry, Mitch. (laughs) No. Okay, wait. I need to clarify. This has nothing to do with us. This is very interesting when it comes to sexual... Just watch it. Okay, I'll watch it this afternoon. It is very interesting to do with sexuality and virtual reality. Okay. 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 It's really good. Highly, highly, highly recommend. It'll really challenge a lot of your thoughts and feelings. We're at six minutes for this episode already. Please do talk. About what? My week? Your life, your week. My week was good. Michelle and I actually started on the biggest project we've ever worked on, maybe in our entire lives. And we are absolutely doing that thing that we always say we hate, but continue to do. We can't fucking clickbait. We can clickbait. What's the word? There needs to be a word for turning into everything you hate about the world. Zara. Oh, there is. Hypocrite. (laughs) 
sell out. No, but the reason I bring it up is because a lot of this project we will be working on separately. Like we're working on it together, but we're not in the same room, which is super weird. We spent two days of this week apart. And on both of those days, we had sort of a list of all the work we needed to get done. And on both of those days, I see you at about 11 o'clock on a weekday (laughs) asking for Love Island threads and Love Island opinions because you're sitting at home watching fucking Love Island. Before we dive into Love Island, which I can't wait to do, by the way. Can we actually just talk about the fact that we can't clickbait listeners? This will be like clickbaiting for over a year. That's oh, very This is mean. a forever thing. No, but I think it's hard when we are literally burning ourselves at both ends of the stick mm. and maybe a ball's about to drop soon. I just want to tell people why the ball's about to drop. We did the very classic female thing of saying yes to everything and fucking ourselves over in the process. We literally don't have a day off at the moment, but that is so fine because we're so happy and so grateful. Also, I'm not going to say the F word for the rest of the episode. That's too many F words too early on. No more. Um, The other thing I did is to sort of get out of my own head. I've been trying to run a little bit, particularly when we've got Connor's run coming up in Mm -hmm. September. By the way, if you haven't registered for that, please do come and join the Shameless team. And what I've been doing is I've been running to your playlist, the Shameless Live playlist that you started when we had a live show back in March. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that I, when I edited that playlist, I edited it for you too. And you think that I have unquestionably the worst music taste in the history of the world. So I am desperate for you to eventually stumble on that playlist again and work out how I've absolutely massacred it. You have an abhorrent taste in music. What would you hate to see in there? Um, it's the what I can't remember the lyrics, but it's like different times. They go through times of the night where it's like slept <laughs> till two, drank till four. Want you? Song is so in till there. Dawn. It's so in there. I hate that song. It also Shawn Mendes a lot. Sean mm. Mendes, Mendes, mm. um, a lot of Justin Bieber and Ed Sheeran. So, I mean, I wasn't even meaning to recommend that playlist, but if anybody wants to get some good tunes in their ears, I mean, you could easily get the same ones from commercial radio, but you're welcome to go to Michelle's massive <sighs> shameless live list. The last thing that I want to do before we actually get into the show, because we should do that, is recommend the most basic bitch bandwagon thing in the entire world, which is Fleabag, because I started watching it. I posted in the Facebook group on Friday night, no, Thursday night, saying, can somebody tell me what to watch? And lo and behold, it had 300 comments later and I was drowning in recommendations. Literally tell me, before we discuss Fleabag really quickly, what do I have to do to get you to watch Love Island? Like what do what can I give you that tells you you should watch? An illness that I have three days of my life to catch up on 40 episodes. It's genuinely just a time thing. No, the, <sighs> the overwhelm in trying to catch up. I'm desperate to catch up on Love Island. No, you're not. I am desperate to be no, in the space not. where you are now. I look at those threads in our Facebook group and just think, FOMO. <laughs> Love Island UK is the best show I've ever watched. I, reality or non-reality, full stop. Trust me, best I have ever. regret about not jumping on at the start. Like I have heaps of regret. I just don't have that much time to watch 40 episodes. I roll. And you know what? It's not just 50 episodes from this season. Inevitably, it will be 50 episodes. It's from like season two onwards. You probably have like 250 episodes to catch up on. I can't do it. And I'm into Fleabag instead because they're shorter <sighs> episodes. They're like 25, 30 minutes. It's smart. It's funny content. Like I've been laughing a lot and I don't laugh that loud when I'm watching things. Um, I'm only like three episodes in, but I very much recommend it. And the reason that I'm so excited to watch it is because people keep saying season two of Fleabag is like the best thing they've ever seen. So I'm almost coasting through season one, waiting for season two. Kind of like Parks and Rec. Totally. You need to break it in. Yeah, yeah. It's lots of fun. Um, Let's actually get into the show (laughs) today because we've gone totally rogue. Um, Let's start with Disney and Ariel. Yeah, late last week, the hashtag NotMyAriel was trending in America on Twitter. And this is all because the new 
Ariel actress Halle Bailey has been announced. She is 19 years old. She's one half of a musical duo with her sister Chloe, and she is going to be the star of Disney's live action adaptation. I cannot read her name without reading it as Halle Berry. Oh my, I know. And I don't think many people can. Halle Bailey. And then Halle Berry posted about Halle Bailey getting this job, and it was like Halle Overload. Halle, Halle B Overload, more like. Yeah. It. I'm interested in this backlash because when you said hashtag not my Ariel is trending, I was genuinely caught a little off guard, which once again speaks to how much we exist in this bubble. It wasn't trending in Australia. It was trending in the US. And granted, a major reason that it was trending was because a lot of people were counter tweeting. Mm -hmm. So using it as an inner in a really ironic way. But it does start a conversation about what happens when we want to push representation and diversity on our screens. But it's going to come in a way that sort of rebrands or reimagines traditionally white characters. Mm. Well, I think the issue was that a whole lot of white people people saw it as a taking of their spot. Yeah. That one of their spots in the Disney lineup had been taken away from white people and given to a black girl. Which is interesting to me because if we're going to talk about feminism or we're going to talk about the push for representation in the media, spots are going to be taken. Like spots are absolutely going to be taken because if spots aren't taken, then we're not going to get anywhere, which kind of blows my mind and also really frustrates me at the same time because it feels like these are the same people who are saying, as a disclaimer, I'm all for representation. I just don't like it in this case. Totally. Well, it really reminds me of Yasmin Abdel-Magid's tweet, which had 110,000 likes. She wrote, I don't see colour, people say, until you try to make a Disney character anything but white. Yeah, it's good. I saw you posted that on our Instagram. I very much liked that. But I think where I get confused is that people who say they aren't fundamentally against representation, they're just against representation in this case, are completely ignoring the fact that we just touched on that if we don't reimagine characters that have always been white, then we, we by definition, can't get anywhere. Like, mm-hmm. we cannot get anywhere. But there's not going to be enough new characters in Disney for us to sort of like, you know, even the ledger out. Like, this has to happen. Totally. And I feel like an idiot for even having to say that. Yeah, it's stupid. Disney created 49 films between 1937 and 2009 before delivering their first black princess in Tiana. So women with dark skin mostly grew up, unless they were born in 2009, grew up watching princesses who weren't anything like them. They didn't have anything to look to. They never saw themselves in Disney characters. It took 70 years for them to have any representation under this company. We are so spoiled if we think this is something being taken from us. We have all the princesses in the world who are white. I'm just almost embarrassed that this is a conversation. Like I'm genuinely embarrassed that we're even here. I think uh, so many of the arguments have been from people who are pushing back against that. We wouldn't take Moana from you, so you don't take Ariel from us. Like, absolutely not the same thing. The other thing that's quite laughable that is sort of like uh, saturating Twitter at the moment are the jokes about, well, like, Ariel's a fucking fish. Like, she's not a woman anyway. Mm. Like, that thing doesn't exist. That sort of character doesn't exist. It doesn't have to be white or black. She's a fish. Totally. And Catelyn Moran also tweeted saying, the Little Mermaid lives on a tropical coral reef with a calypso-singing lobster with a strong Jamaican accent. When you think about it, it's kind of bizarre she was white the first time around. (laughs) The other favourite tweet of mine was, imagine being mad about the race of a raw fucking fish. (laughs) You know what this does say to me, though? It says a lot about the rise and prominence of black Twitter. Have you read? Totally. Yeah, this has just been everywhere, particularly in Britain and particularly, sorry to bring it back to my one true love, particularly around Love Island. I feel like there is such an uprising of 
black women and men on Twitter who no longer want the narrative to be a white one. They want their voices to be heard and they're banding together to get their voices out there. And I think if you go and look at the Not My Ariel hashtag, you'll see that coming to life. There are a whole bunch of people and whole communities banding together to challenge archaic views. And black Twitter is really empowering and it's very motivational. Like you read these people who are all getting behind each other and retweeting each other's things and it's just like a massive pushback and it's so great to see on Twitter which can be such a gross space and they use humour a lot like there's a lot of use of humour to sort of push back against really archaic ideas about race and about the media and I do really enjoy that I have to say though when you told me that this was a story I accidentally put into Twitter not my Ariel but spelt it with an A I'm so close to calling you being like this is absolutely not a story (laughs) because there are no tweets (laughs) I think that's like Um, isn't Ariel a font yes it it is is. (laughs) (laughs) too much time on Google Doc this week. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. You guys know the drill. Every week we give you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. Zara, first story. First story, the full story of Elbowgate, how a throwaway line on Sunrise sparked a national debate over what really happened between David Koch and Martha Kalifiditis at the Logies. So who do you believe? That is from the Daily Mail. What a fucking headline. Go on, Zara, explain it. Also, how a throwaway line on Sunrise sparked a national debate should just be a headline every single week. Um, I actually don't really know what happened. This is your story. That's why you're trying to throw me under the bus. Yeah, I think everyone needs to go watch Martha's YouTube video on this. So basically, She did like a 16-minute video on whether she elbowed David Koch, right? Yes. So <laughs> Martha is from Married at First Sight. For those who are listening to us from outside of Australia. Massive Married at First Sight personality, got into a lot of drama, a lot of controversy, probably one of the most talked about people on reality television in Australia, 2019. I would comfortably say that. Looks Um, like a Kardashian as well. Does look like a Kardashian. Yes. She was accused by Koshi on Sunrise of elbowing him at the Logie's red carpet and bruising him. That was then met Seems with... Seems a little bit dramatic for Koshi. That was then met with a few jabs from other people on the Sunrise panel, like Samantha Armitage, who basically said, who is that? I've got no idea who that is. And just made like a few little snide comments <laughs> to the effect of what are like trashy reality yeah, stuff, of course. basically. Martha wasn't a huge fan of that and insists she didn't elbow David Koshi. <laughs> And went on a tirade on her YouTube channel. And she made a lot of really good points, actually. She said that Sam Armitage has gone on before and said that she doesn't like um, the media pitting women against women. And some of the comments Sam Armitage made on Sunrise were a bit nasty. I do think she has a point, but I also think maybe this has all been taken a little bit too seriously because now journalists are literally following these two around. They've been interviewing different Married at First Sight contestants at airports, stopping them to be like, did you see the elbow? Did the elbow happen? The Daily Mail has got their tentacles all over this story and they won't let it go. It's kind of funny. Like sometimes we lose the ability to laugh at absurd stories like this one when we take it so seriously. Well, go on, Elbowgate. Do you think it happened? Like probably. (laughs) Like as if David Koch is going to make this up. (laughs) Genuinely. It's David Koch. He's got so many better fucking things to do. Oh, my God, I'm swearing so much too. (laughs) Um, Also, how is this the second episode in a row that David Koch has been mentioned? Not quite our demo. When did we mention David I mentioned him last week. This is like the time we mentioned Richard Wilkins, like, three times like three different episodes in a row good story michelle not bad you're welcome number two channel seven slammed for bumping ash barty match for nick curios that is from abc thoughts um 
I mean, my thoughts would be pretty similar to the rest of the country in that this is very much why women's sport is not taken seriously when we have the first female Australian world number one and we can't even get her her match broadcast. That said, I don't think it's as black and white as sexism as a lot of people would think, like blatant sexism. I think sexism is very um, insidious. insidious and subtle. And I think there is something to be said, A, for the drama that Nick Kyrgios brings to a game and B, the fact he was playing an Australian and it was a much more even match. Like there are arguments for that. Um, but like I said, I mean, if we can't get Ash Barty on our screens, what hope do a lot of us have? Yeah, I think an important caveat, I'm not defending Channel 7, I think they totally made the wrong call and I think they were totally uh, – And I think the people who called them out were totally justified. However, it's a really important caveat that Channel 7 has a deal with Wimbledon where they can only show one match at a time. Nick Kyrgios started at about 11 p.m. Australian time. Ash Barty started about 12.30 a.m. from what I can gather. So they played the Nick Kyrgios game, had the original intention to then flick to Ash Barty, but the Nick Kyrgios game ended up going to five sets and was very tight. And therefore, the people who had invested in Nick Kyrgios, in Channel 7's opinion, would have been pissed off if they were then shown Ash Barty halfway through. I think it was the wrong call. I don't think they should have done it. I think they got it wrong. I don't think it was simple as choosing the man over the woman. No, I absolutely agree. And I think we should also mention that Nick Kyrgios was throwing so many tantrums that he was trending on Twitter for the majority, Australian Twitter, during the course of that game. And I think that's important to note too, in that it's not as black and white. That doesn't, that's not to say it doesn't matter. But I think if we're going to have these conversations and we're going to really push for women's sport to be taken seriously, we also need to be really realistic in our arguments because I think we're going to lose a lot of people and get a lot of people offside if we pretend this is black and white gender. How brilliant is it, though, after a decade of really petulant, childish male tennis players in Australia, we have this shining beacon of light in Ash Barty and she's killing it. And I'd use the F word to get behind her, but I've promised myself I won't. No, She is amazing. Her attitude is spot on. She is so young. There is so much ahead of her. And I think she has really reinvigorated Tennis Australia with the enthusiasm that it needs. Do you know why I found it quite heartening? Because we have had many conversations in the past about sort of like the rise of a quiet achiever and whether you can be recognised if you put your head down and just work and not shout about the work that you're doing. And for me, I found that quite warming and quite heartening in that the sort of like, I hate to use the old cliche, but like the cream has risen to the top in that she's put her head down, she's worked and she's been recognized for it. What an elderly style quote. I know. I How feel like I just genuinely just felt like my mom then. The cream now, has let risen me, to let the Let me move on. What a cool woke millennial. <laughs> the cream has risen to the top. If you fucking remix that, I'll kill you. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Hmm, (laughs) an idea if I've ever heard one number three Sophie Turner's one-of-a-kind Louis Vuitton wedding dress took more than 350 hours to make that is from People magazine this is the only angle from the Sophie Turner Jonas brother wedding that I could get into I don't care that they got married again this time in France I think it was but the dress was pretty cool and the detail of how much went into making that dress were fascinating yeah I actually am into the Sophie Turner Jonas thing because I don't know who either of them are and I don't know how either of them are demanding so many headlines, but they just are. I mean, obviously, Sophie Turner, huge Game of Thrones. I was about to say, Game of Thrones fans would be screaming. I'm not not a full idiot, but she's still marrying a Jonas brother. Like, no one really cares about Jonas brothers. And this comes back to our point a couple of months ago in that what are the Jonas brothers doing? Don't. Jonas brothers are ferocious. They'll come for us. Jonas brothers or Jonas brother fans? Jonas brothers, probably both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Joe Jonas is coming after us. I would actually really enjoy it. 
that. <laughs> I would love that. He was nominated for a Logie, wasn't he? Number four, an Instagram star put her own bath water up for sale for $30 a bottle and it sold out in three days. That's from Insider. Your face right now. <laughs> I feel like my brows are so furrowed they're going to close over my eyes soon. What is this? So an Instagram star called Belle Delphine. Hang on. Uh, uh, uh. Instagram star. Yeah, that's Let's what... Let's just call her an Instagram influencer. Ins- that's what Insider called her. You I was don't need to call her them, that. But I was quoting them. All right. Okay, so she's an Instagram star. An Instagram person by the name of Belle Delphine recently gave... Delphine, please. Whatever. Who cares? Recently... We're talking about bathwater here and you want to get stuck up on Delphine or Delphine. <laughs> recently gave her 3.9 million Instagram followers. 3.9 million. I reckon it makes you an Instagram star. The chance to buy her bathwater for 30 bucks, right? Mm, so the bottles of Gamer Girl bathwater were targeted at sort of uh, gamers. Oh, so she's like, is she like a cosplay? She's kind of a, um, my mom is going to listen to this, so I'm going to be careful with my wording. She's a bit of like a naughty. <laughs> oh my God, I feel like a hundred right now. Like a bit of a glamour model. Kind of, but very into like the gamer scene. So it's just cosplay. What's cosplay? Cosplay is like, um, it's like that costumey it's costume play this is incredibly naughty i see it's, it's very naughty I there's see, some naughtiness on there I see some tape over some nipples that say f me and Pornhub is the top comment okay okay wait you need to understand i need to give you context so wait wait she's on Pornhub. yes i'm trying to tell you why <laughs> So, firstly, the bottles of Gamer Girl bathwater came with a disclaimer. This water is not to be used for drinking and should only be used for sentimental purposes. (laughs) For those who might have heard of Belle Delphine or Delphine or whoever, in June she made headlines when she told her followers she would make an account on Pornhub if her photo received over a million likes. Obviously the photo got over a million likes because demos. And instead of posting anything sexual, she posted some sort of like bizarre video of herself stroking a stuffed toy cockerel and eating a picture of PewDiePie. What? Like, oh, wait, PewDiePie. Who's PewDiePie? PewDiePie. Oh. Zara. <laughs> I know. The most followed YouTuber, YouTuber. Yeah, of course. in the world. PewDiePie. PewDiePie, of course. Absolutely. Oh PewDiePie. Um. <laughs> Jesus. Get this show back on track immediately. Someone fire me. God damn. So, yeah, that's the story. What did you think? I'm clutching my pearls. All all for Belle Delphine making the money however she wants to make it. Or Delphine. <laughs> Maybe that could be her nickname. She's Belle. Do you think our next merch drop is going to be bathwater? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Buy my bathwater. She, um, yeah, I'm clutching my pearls a little bit, but all power to her. It looks like she's killing it doing what she's doing. So. I would love to know how many bottles of bathwater she sold. I would also love to know if she just genuinely opened the tap, filled up the little bottles and sent them on rather than actually got into the bathwater herself. Alas, that's something we'll never find out. So number five, misguided USA ordered to pay Kim Kardashian worst $2.7 million in damages. That is from the BBC. Is this about the fast fashion ripoff? Yeah, it is. So some of you guys might remember a couple of months ago, there was like this weird story going around where every time Kim Kardashian would upload a photo in an outfit, Misguided would upload the same dress to their website a couple of hours later. And we are talking genuinely like the space of a couple of hours. And there was sort of a bit of back and forth as to whether Kim Kardashian was on board with this. There are a few um, conspiracy theories that allege that maybe Kim Kardashian was leaking these designs to fast fashion brands and got a cut of the deal. Yeah. 
Yeah. And when we say there were a few, I did peddle a few of them on this podcast. <laughs> Mostly started on the Shameless podcast with no, Zara McDonald. No, they didn't start here, but I definitely pushed them when I wanted to. Turns out I was wrong. So um, you push conspiracy <laughs> theories and don't know who PewDiePie is. <laughs> like I said, someone fire me. It turns out that there was no conspiracy theory that she did sue Misguided USA and won $2.7 million US dollars for these kinds of things and tweeted later that she was very disappointed, not in the outcome, really happy with the outcome, but disappointed in Misguided because she felt like a lot of um, hard work from designers was being ripped off and mocked Mm. by Misguided in the process. So not a bad day for Kim Kardashian West. No word yet on where that money is going. Probably to the Kim Kardashian West bank account. I would love it to go to something like, you know, designers oh you bleeding hearts oh honey that's not gonna happen but Um, good on her i mean go get your money if she's being ripped off she's being ripped off i feel kind of bad for standing by your conspiracy theories yeah i know you let this happen (laughs) this is all your fault kim i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry that's all i've got for you thank you so much It was arguably the biggest celebrity story of the week. Taylor Swift came out swinging on Tumblr after it was announced high-profile music manager Scooter Braun had bought her old record label, acquiring the masters to all of her existing albums in the process. From there came a celebrity slinging match. Some took Swift's side, others Braun's, while the rest of us sat on the sidelines wondering what the F was really going on. Zara, what was going on? It took me a long time to work it out. I am very interested in most stories around Taylor Swift and I couldn't quite get a handle on why this story was important or why it was this that Taylor Swift decided to push back on. I think there are so many moving parts here Same. and I can't wait to actually wade through them all with you because I, when I did my research, little things kept popping up where I was like, what the hell? It's hard to get a handle on and I think that's why it's not surprising that so many of us struggle to understand why this really mattered. So a tiny bit of context to get us started for those who couldn't really get across the story as much as they wanted to this week. So Braun owns a company called Ithaca Holdings, who announced an estimated $300 million deal for Big Machine Label Group. Big Machine Label Group might sound familiar because it was the record label that Taylor Swift was with up until the end of 2018. And it was the label that released Swift's first six albums. Yes. And she signed onto that record label when she was 15. She signed on for six albums. And at the time she says she wasn't aware that the masters for each of her albums would therefore belong to the group and not to herself. It's an interesting line and there's a bit of interesting detail that you guys can go research if you want to. But basically when you record a song with a recording company, the deal that she signed meant that the actual recordings themselves, the actual MP3 files belong to the company, while the composition of the music and the lyrics belong to her. Exactly. And so what that actually means, because I think that's the biggest question I've been asking around this week, is why does it matter who owns the music if she's still making money from it? There was a really great explainer on Refinery29 by Courtney E. Smith, who wrote, Swift left Big Machine Records without having the master rights to her work. Those rights would allow her to continue to make money from the catalogue of her first six albums but Swift will continue to only earn a percentage of the money they make. Labels are historically known not to have transparent accounting practices and part of Swift's problem with Braun may be a lack of trust. If any, quote, creative accounting should happen, she may never see another dime from her master recordings or simply a drastically reduced payout from Big Machine. Yes, there are also massive branding decisions that could now be made without Taylor Swift's input. For example, if Scooter Braun's company, who who now owns the masters to her records, decides to put a Taylor Swift album in a major 
in a major movie totally. in cinemas that doesn't align well with Taylor Swift's brand or is a bit of a cheap, trashy look for her, she can't actually control she, that. Yeah, so the owner of the Masters have all the rights to exploit the music, to put it wherever they want. They could sell the albums. They could license the songs, like we said, for video games or for music. This isn't uncommon, though, and I think we should touch on that. So record labels do typically own the master recordings as part of the, the deals they sign with artists. For example, Beyonce doesn't own her masters. Columbia Records does. Ariana Grande doesn't own her masters either. Republic Record does. So a lot of savvy artists are trying to change this. And I think a huge part of the reason that Taylor Swift moved from Big Machine to Republic Records at the end of last year was because of this issue. Yes. And although it sounds really expensive, I was listening to a New York Times explainer on this on their pop culture podcast. And it's actually funny. Michael Jackson years and years ago bought the masters to all of the Beatles records and almost quadrupled his investment. So this is a huge area for money growth and for for things like best of albums and yeah. just kind of like regurgitating and repurposing that existing content can be very lucrative, especially as the music industry changes and technology comes in, blah, 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 blah. But it's a massive deal for recording artists like Taylor Swift, particularly when that music falls into the hands of someone she's had a murky history with. Well, exactly. And I think it does speak to that lack of trust that exists there. She doesn't know what's going to happen to the music in the future. And I think that's why my initial scepticism about this story came in, because I very naively assumed, well, if the music's in the past, it's already been produced and released and enjoyed and you've made all the money from it and you've performed it at concerts, what's the issue? I think the other thing that's made me sort of sit up and take notice a little bit is that this is not Taylor crying foul for the sake of crying foul, in my opinion, because clearly it was a big enough deal for her, for her to move record labels after X years, how many years? 15 years. And in her new deal with Republic Records, she has gained all ownership of her future masters. So this has been a deal for a very long time for her. And that is a really important point I think we make. Absolutely. And if she was to stay with Big Machine, she was trying to negotiate to get those masters under her name. They said that she would need to make an album to then reclaim a master back. So she would need to create six more albums effectively to have those existing six albums under her name and it's kind of like being trapped or being kept prisoner in your own record label and of course there is so many conflicting issues that come along with that as well I do want to say this is the battle of the Scots there are three Scots involved in this story there's Scott Borchetta who owned Big Machine who sold that company to Scott Braun who goes by Scooter yeah right then there's Scott Swift Taylor Swift's dad who is a major shareholder in Big Machine and has been involved in this process and has been actively avoiding meetings because in the lead up to them announcing this massive deal he was avoiding all the meetings in the company because he was going to be forced to sign an NDA and therefore he couldn't go to his daughter and tell her what was about to happen. How wild is that? How messy is it? I could not believe that when I read that her dad has been involved in this company since she signed on over a decade ago, it just adds another layer of messiness to the whole thing. So he had to have lawyers go in for him. And apparently, according to Taylor, he did not know until it was only a few days before. It's interesting to me because I sat down with my sister and we sort of very briefly touched on this the other night at dinner. And she said to me, whose side am I meant to be on? Like, is Taylor playing victim or are we um, meant to be, you know, in support of what she's saying? And I'm not usually a fan of, of people who air dirty laundry. Part of me is just like, keep it to yourself. But I do think this story serves a greater purpose than just Taylor Swift. I think A, it starts a conversation about musicians owning their music. And B, it starts a conversation about young women being taken for a ride 
guide in the early stages of their career. And I think that's a really important conversation to be had. It's not just young women. It's also people of color as well in this industry who seem to be taken for a ride. America Ferreira, for one, has echoed these thoughts about this idea of being trapped in a contract from a really young age and being having no power to change it. Absolutely. And the dirty elements of this story are what really get me. Did you read the statement and the blog post that Scott Borchetta put out about this? No, I haven't. This There was one paragraph and the New York Times picked this up too. I couldn't believe it when I was reading this. This is a paragraph that he included in his response to Taylor Swift's original blog post on Tumblr. Scooter was never anything but positive about Taylor. He called me directly about Manchester to see if Taylor would participate. She declined. He called me directly to see if Taylor wanted to participate in the Parkland March. She declined. He, in those words, is painting Taylor Swift as an unemotional, unsympathetic, cold-hearted bitch, in as many words, by saying she didn't want to help kids who died in major public attacks. That inclusion in a blog post retort to her talking about not owning her masters is so cutting and so interesting to me. That's playing dirty. Tell you what I'm really fucking sick of? Older men targeting younger women. Like genuinely intimidating and targeting younger women. Because that feels like complete intimidation. Those first two sentences in that that paragraph you just read don't even match. Like they don't even tell the same story. He's talking about how... Scooter Braun's only ever been positive about Taylor Swift, but those that doesn't even match up with his next sentence at mm-hmm. all. That's incredibly frustrating. And also on top of that, I would love to know how many male artists didn't do the Parkland shooting march or the Manchester one love concept. There would be so many. And I think we often put it onto women that to be likable and to be respected as successful people, they also need to have this charitable side to them where I don't think we expect the same thing from men. It's like to be successful as a woman, you need to have this side of you. You're also very philanthropic. We don't do that for successful men. I mean, gender aside, I think that point is not as important as the fact that we can't expect someone high profile to stand for everything or to be involved in every single charity thing. I think we're really going to fall down if that's the expectation. I did want to swing this conversation very quickly into the intensity of Taylor Swift's fandom in the wake of this story breaking, because it's interesting to me that someone like Sia, the singer Sia, decided to involve herself in this as somebody who tries to pull her personality back from the limelight and actually be a singer first, a person personality kind of second, well, a character Mm. rather than herself. It's interesting to me that Sia came out in support of Scooter Braun and sort of ran the gauntlet with Taylor Swift's fans because they did not miss a beat. They uploaded a photo of Sia in blackface where she had sort of painted her face black um, as part of a performance to what she says blended into a wall. Um, and it's it's incredibly interesting to me that someone like Sia wants to put herself on the line when we know how intense Taylor Swift's fans are. So you don't watch Keeping Up With Kardashians. Sia is a major Kim Kardashian supporter and close friend, and she would be going into bat for Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. So who that's were where it's exit. coming Abs- from. But even still, publicly, it's surprising to me because mm-hmm. these kinds of celebrities aren't just shooting off a random tweet without thinking about it. Like there are implications for standing by someone in a public feud. I think just speaking about Sia for a second, I think she is trying to pivot away from that very private narrative she ran for so long because she's been included in some of the most high profile keeping up the Kardashian episodes this season. And I think that was very strategic. She was on a video phone call with them, with Kanye West. So I think that's a really interesting shift in the way she wants to be a public persona. Back to the idea of enraging 
intense fans and we'll call them stands for the people who've seen that word stan rolling around on the internet that's basically an amalgamation of the words stalker and fan to describe a lot of the swifties that are out there they are stands i think it's incredibly tactical that taylor swift aired her grievances on tumblr because on tumblr you have a very very young fan base and i think when you have a young person taking on your viewpoints and your arguments they are probably going to be more passionate they'll be very technical Technologically savvy, they'll be very willing to go into bat for you. She didn't put this on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. She put it on Tumblr, and that's for a reason. That's where the stands are. Oh, totally. She could have put this on Instagram or actually anywhere else. I do wonder where the intensity of her fans come from. Like, does she set the tone? I mean, she is a pretty divisive character in herself and seems like a pretty intense personality herself. Or is it that young women, like her specific demographic, have very rarely been taken seriously and often don't have many places to go? And so they're channeled into this one space. I don't know. We often come back to this point a lot that there's no easy way of inspiring passion and enthusiasm without the pendulum swinging so far, which Mm -hmm. has seemed to be what happened with Taylor Swift's fans in that they get so enraged and so passionate and so defensive that they almost take it too far. I am interested in your thoughts around that, though. I think it has a lot to do with the victim mentality that Taylor Swift has been accused, rightly or wrongly, of adopting at any given opportunity. And I think that victim mentality, it puts a lot of people off, but it's also very attractive to a lot of people who want to get behind that and potentially feel like victims too. So I think Taylor Swift voicing her opinion from a victim standpoint gives a whole bunch of young women the opportunity to do the same. Thank you, next bitch. The coast of Utopia, the Vanity Fair headline read, US journalist Karina Chicano had travelled all the way from Los Angeles to Byron Bay to report on Murphers, the mums and the surfers that make up the Byron Bay influencer community. The story was part envy, part kind of satire. Who are these women who have saturated Instagram with their linen dresses, perfect children and slow lifestyle? Well, according to Chicano, they live in old-fashioned houses and give their carefully unstyled children names that sound dreamed up for a goop collaboration with Lemony Snicket. (laughs) They're married to supportive, handsome and scruffy men of purpose. I quite like that line, scruffy Mm. men of purpose. They make their own hours and dinners and soap. They have their own brands. They are their own brands. Mish, tell me how you felt when you read this story. I think this story tapped into what I think is the overriding theme of pop culture in 2019. Which is? And Instagram in 2019. Performing. Yeah. I think... And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think we are all performers and particularly stage show. It's literally like, it's like the Truman show. Yeah, totally. It's becoming real that so many people, including the women covered in this vanity fair article, which I agree, one of my favorite stories I've ever read full stop have professional photographers and videographers and the lighting is just so, and the way they present their life is fiction like it's all fiction it's all this alternate reality and how much we are performing everyday things about our lives the milestones and the minutiae is kind of terrifying like it actually does remind me of black mirror reading this story completely that was the first thing i wrote down after reading this story was black mirror 
Um, a bit of context before we start, because this was, I, I said to you the minute I had finished this story, I sort of rejigged our lineup at the, the 11th hour for today. We ditched a segment, which we will do one day, but it got pushed for this. Because I said to you, this is the best story I've read all year. And it wasn't just the content, it was the writing. The subtle sass that saturated and was like insidious in that piece was unbelievable to read. So the story starts with a semi-profile on Courtney Adamo, who some might know because she made headlines last month for launching a collaborative e-course on family lifestyle, which she offered to her 250,000 Instagram followers at a cost for $250. So she has five children. She has like this perfect Byron Bay, perfectly styled heritage home. She's actually American. She has like a trust fund for days because her great great grandpa is some like media or was some like media tycoon in the US. And she has genuinely like this linen closet that never ends, like perfect tan and a perfect husband. It's the perfect Byron Bay life in an Instagram profile. So the story then follows sort of Adamo and a bunch of her friends who are all mums and Instagram stars um, who juggle personal brands as well as professional actual brands. Yes. And I think the thing that really got me about Adamo is she says that she doesn't let her kids on screens and they don't use plastic. And the overwhelming vibe I get from that is that in 2019 to live cleanly and live ethically and live in like an Instagram friendly way, you have to be rich to do so. There is such a classist element to living this pure lifestyle that people like Adamo promulgate on Instagram at every chance. It feels a bit post-wellness to me. Like yeah. it feels like the new wellness or maybe like post-modern wellness in that health is health was always conflated with being better and now it's sort of like this ethical slow living linen wearing human is a better human well it's like the wellness has extended way outside your own body Completely. it's not just about training your own body with wellness now it's like living well everything your skin touches is ethical and sustainable and clean and pure and non-gmo and perfect and like perfect. i think it's the one word we're forgetting to use is that it's perfection i think one of the there's so many quotes that i want to read from this story but one of the ones i want to start with is from a man called Joe Gagliese, who was interviewed, who co-founded Viral Nation, which is an influencer marketing and talent agency that's based in Toronto. And he called Byron Bay now one of those unicorn locations. And I think the comparison in the piece of Byron Bay to Alice in Wonderland struck me as incredibly confronting because Byron Bay with these influences at the helm now feels kind of otherworldly and almost terrifyingly perfect. I just, I don't know, it feels like something where you walk that fine line between is this utopia or is this like the start of a horror movie? Yeah, well, it's like the the complete commodification of being free-spirited. Yeah. Like there is no such thing as being a hippie or being free-spirited anymore. It's all for public consumption. And the irony, the unavoidable glaring irony in not letting your kids watch screens, touch screens, be around screens, but in single clicks sharing your kids' personal lives and illuminating their most private moments onto the screens of hundreds of thousands of strangers. Well, you you make money because of the screen. Yeah, like... You it, exist because of the screen. I read this and I just felt my pupils like disappear into the back of my head as to how some of these people are living. And I know that sounds nasty and I don't want to be nasty, 
But it's a little bit ridiculous how sheltered this culture is getting. I think the difference is if they were self-aware and almost socially aware, then the resentment wouldn't exist. But because there's a complete lack of self-awareness as well. I mean, there are a few people, I'm going to say characters interviewed in this story, that do seem to be a little bit self-aware who've pulled back. But the key players don't seem self-aware at all, which sort of inspires that resentment. I mean, the littering for me of dollar figures throughout the piece. So Chicano, when she's walking through Adamo's house, um, puts dollar figures next to every single item in that in that house, whether it's the jumper that she's wearing or the oven that she's cooking in. And the other thing that she very cleverly does is puts Instagram following numbers next to every single person mentioned. And we just said before, it feels so Black Mirror to, to us. And I know, I feel like we say that so much at the moment, that it feels so Black Mirror-like. And I feel like maybe it's me just refusing to acknowledge that the Black Mirror and our world aren't very separate forces anymore, that our world is becoming more and more like that show than we kind of ever thought possible. Mm. But I don't know, it's that total contrast between selling the slow life and the infiltration of money and numbers and your currency and worth being tied to your bank account and your following number. It's just all very eerie to me, which is why I loved so much how Chicano wrote it, because not once did she ever use the word hypocrite, but like the elements of hypocrisy were sort of like littered throughout it. It was a classic case of showing, not telling. For me, I think like the juxtaposition between old Byron Bay and new Byron Bay was really strong to me, like where simplicity now is sold as a lifestyle and as a way of life. There was this really great quote from Chicano that was, the Byron of your digital and increasingly brand-sponsored imagination, however, is all of that minus the bad stuff, a carefully curated bank of images designed to stoke your lifestyle longings. It's weird for me as someone who... Um, has holidayed in Byron since before I, I was going to say before I was born, but actually <laughs> technically before I was born because my mum was holidaying there when I was pre- when she was pregnant with me, who can see this like tiny, once very sleepy town completely and utterly commodified. Like the best parts of that town have now been wrapped up and sold to the masses. Mm, totally. And movie stars and very, very overwhelmingly white rich people. My favourite quote from the entire piece was, it's a land of large nomadic mm. broods who find their tribes on life's journey. Never mind that Australia's policy on immigration and refugees are draconian, bordering on vicious. In this young, mostly white, ahistorical, neoliberal utopia of the imagination, anyone can go anywhere. And that's it. It's like a complete, it's almost like these people have their blinkers on to everything else about Australian history and the area that they're in and the lives that they're living. I think the one element that you just touched on with that quote that we haven't really touched on, though, is like this, uh, the element of white privilege that's the thread of the entire piece in that it's a slow life and it's for people who want a simple life. But the reality and the irony of a simple life is that a simple life costs a lot of money. Like these bloggers are almost exclusively white and there's a whole bunch of money going on here and going around here. And I think there is a complete failure on their part to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the privilege that exists within their realm and within their bubble. Where do you think the anger comes from? Because I read this and felt angry, like I felt disdain. And I never channel my disdain for influencers or people online who I don't necessarily like or agree with in comments and I don't put that in their face. It's kind of something that I internalise and just click out of and I choose not to follow those people. However, there are entire blogs and websites erected on the internet to bring down these Byron Bay influencers. I think it comes from a sense that these Byron Bay murphers 
are looking down at us all from their ivory tower. They're looking down on us for using plastic. They're looking down on us for not wearing linen and sustainable clothing and maybe shopping at big supermarkets. And it's kind of like a rejection of all this consumerism that happens in big cities. That's the annoying part that we are looked on as these lowly, less ethical human beings. Is that what the anger is for you? No, not at all. And I don't even know if I necessarily agree with that because I don't feel like they're being necessarily preachy. I think by virtue of what they're posting, it looks preachy, but they're not telling anyone what to do. It's just how they're branding themselves. I think it's the element of gaslighting. I think it's that people feel like they're crazy for not living like they do. And I think it's the element of hypocrisy too, that we don't believe them. Like for all we love scrolling through those perfect images, in that perfect life. We don't believe it now. We're smarter and we don't believe it at all. There's no way you can reject the fast life and be part of a slow life when you're sort of the biggest player in consumer aspiring that exists. I mean, one of the last points that I wanted to make, and I don't know if I'm overanalyzing this, but I spent a lot of time deep in this piece. And I wanted to talk about like the rise of linen as physical branding for these people. And and I just wonder if it's signaling, like this is the slow life, weather doesn't hurt us, everything is easy and breezy and comfortable and, and sunny and it, breathable. Well, it's that physical representation of flow and not being constricted or confined. And I think that's the narrative they're trying to push, that we aren't constricted by anything, we're not confined by big city life, like look at us. And linen just plays such a role there. It's also like white linen, like the cleanliness oh. of living in Byron Bay, yeah. how clean and white everything is. I just think if you're a mother or a father living in Melbourne or Sydney or any of the other big cities or country towns who are living a fast life, not of your own volition. So many of us are forced to live a fast life. We're forced to be on the clock. We're forced to be attached to our screens or have kids watching screens or whatever. We're forced to work full time because we don't have the means to do anything else. To then have this slow life ideal held up just feels like a bit of a smack in the face. It's like no one can live a slow life unless you have the financial means to do so. And in almost every case, those financial means come from the family you're born into, not the work that you put Yeah, which brings us back to that point about where the resentment comes from. There's a lot of resentment in Australia about other people having money and not being self-aware about where that money has come from and how it's sort of had a hold on their lifestyle. The Guardian also sort of did a follow-up piece on this Vanity Fair um, story and referenced how it's like the new age Stepford Wives, which I really liked that comparison in that they kind of are the modern day Stepford Wives. It's, It's a different form of domestication. It's like not... I don't know, like overly dressed up, like lipstick wearing kitchen obsessives, but instead they're like planning out the perfect flat lay picnic instead, but Mm. still being the perfect wife. Mm. It really felt reminiscent of Holly Wainwright's second fiction book, which was called How to Be Perfect. And one of the main characters in that, Elle, had this business in Byron Bay and basically lived this exact life to a T. And as I read the Vanity Fair article, I was thinking, I wonder if Wainwright got inspiration from Courtney Adamo. It felt very, very similar to Elle's character. So true. We should ask Holly if she actually did. (laughs) Um, I did want to finish on one quote, and I think it's from Joe Gagliese, who I quoted at the very start, who said, it's either pretty scary or pretty cool, depending on how you look at it. (laughs) Bit of both. I think pretty scary. Bit of column A, bit of column B. Hey, that is all we have time for today. Thanks for listening, I guess. Oh, wow. That was awkward. We're going to leave that right in there. I'm so bad at this And you swore again. Wow. I'm not good at rapping things. Before we go, 
there are a couple of things you can do to support Shameless. So we had a bunch of one-star reviews last week. Let's not talk too much about it. But if you love us, please leave us a nicer review than that. If you don't like us, just click out. That's fine. I don't think you'd be listening at like the 57th minute mark if you didn't (laughs) like us. Uh, But please do leave us a review. It really helps us out from all those one stars that we got. The other thing you can do is, of course, take a screenshot if you're listening to this on your mobile phone and share it on your Instagram story and tell your friends to listen or say what you liked about the episode. That kind of stuff really helps us. We're obviously just two independent podcasters. We do this entirely by ourselves. We are working really hard to get as much as we can out to you guys. So the main way you can help us do that as two people going up against massive companies is to support us. Yes, you can also find us on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community or on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. In the meantime, we will be dropping like a million episodes a week. I don't even know what day it is anymore, so I guess I'll see you in your feet. How good saying yes to everything. <laughs> I think we need to go to like counselling sessions to learn how to say no. See you on Thursday, guys. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.